0: Mark chapter 4, we're continuing our series, Binge Watching Jesus. One of my favorite comic strips growing up was Calvin and Hobbes. The creator, Bill Watterson, was a genius. And my favorite collection of Calvin and Hobbes comics is titled, Something Under the Bed is Drooling. I probably read this as much as my Bible in high school. I loved Calvin and Hobbes. Every day I couldn't wait to open the newspaper and see what kind of trouble Calvin was getting into. And Sundays were the best because they were bigger and they were in color. And in one of the Sunday comics, Calvin, who is with his talking stuffed tiger named Hobbes, Calvin thinks there is a monster under his bed. After the lights go out and his dad leaves, Calvin tries to lure the monster out from under his bed. And so he and Hobbes start talking about how they have put on so much weight and now they are nice and plump. Calvin says, any monsters under my bed tonight? And it's quiet. There's no response. And Hobbes says, there's no answer. Do you think they're gone? And Calvin says, maybe they're just staying quiet. Keep watch over the side of the bed. And then Calvin says, boy, am I full. I must have gained 10 pounds today. Maybe I'm getting a little plump. And Hobbes says, you're bigger, Calvin. There's no fat on you. Calvin says, I guess you're right. I'm getting big, but I'm still nice and lean. And then Hobbes leans over the side of the bed and says, ugh, something under the bed is drooling. And Calvin says, start tying the sheets together, we'll go out the window. (laughs) In this comic, Bill Watterson has captured the universal fear that every little kid has growing up. There's a monster under my bed. Kids are thoroughly convinced that there are monsters in their closets or under their beds, and when they go to sleep, said monsters will emerge and eat them for dinner. It's a universal fear that children have. There is a monster under my bed. Something under my bed is drooling. But did you know that the Israelites and their contemporaries had a similar universal fear? People in the ancient Near East feared the oceans and the seas. Yes, they fished in them. They had boats, but they lived in fear of what they believed was in the water. For them, there was a monster under their boat. Something under their boat was drooling. And if we don't understand this universal ancient Near Eastern fear, then we'll miss what's happening in our passage today and what Jesus was trying to communicate to his disciples. What Mark is telling us in his gospel today is that whether you think there is a monster under your bed, or a monster under your boat, or if you think something under your bed or boat is drooling, you don't have to fear because Jesus is near. Whatever is happening in your life right now, Jesus is present. He's there, and he is in charge, and therefore, You don't have to fear. So look at verse 35 in Mark chapter 4 and hear the word of the Lord. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. Now, last week we saw Jesus get in a boat and he was teaching the crowds who were gathered on the shore listening. And now Jesus leaves those crowds behind because he is going to teach the disciples a lesson about darkness. Jesus is about to take his disciples into the heart of darkness where their faith will be tested. Now, notice that Mark tells us in verse 35, on that day when it was evening. So this episode occurs at night on the sea when it was dark. Now, that may not scare you and give you the heebie-jeebies, but to someone living in the first century, it surely did. To be out on the open waters in a boat in the dark was like being in a horror movie for a first century Jew. Now, Let me explain ancient Hebrew cosmology to you. Here's a picture of how the Jews saw the world. We, of course, know that this is not how the world is, but this is how everybody in the ancient Near East thought the world was like. Whether you believed in Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, or you believed in Tiamat or Marduk, these Babylonian gods, or whether you believed in the Egyptian god Ra, this is how you viewed the world. The ancient Israelites, and other nations as well, believed that the earth was a floating disk supported by these pillars. People who lived in the ancient Near East were the original flat earth proponents. They believed that the earth was a floating disk, and it kind of looked like a snow globe. That's how they viewed the world, how they viewed the earth. It was like a snow globe. And when you read Genesis 1, this is how Abraham and Moses and all the Israelites viewed the world. When you read Genesis 1, you need to have this picture in your mind or next to your Bible. This picture, by the way, will be in the sermon notes. Or you can just get on Google and type in Hebrew cosmology and a dozen of these kinds of pictures will pop up. Ancient Israelites believed that the sky was a vault resting on these foundations or on these mountains. They believed that the sky was made up of water. Because when you look at the sky, what color is it? It's blue. And so for them, it's all water up there. They looked up at the sky and thought it was blue, and they said, that's all water. So how did the water stay up there? They believed that there was something they called the firmament and an expanse, a clear, solid dome in the sky that held back all of the blue water that was up there. And so when it speaks in Genesis of the waters above and the waters below, this is what Moses is speaking of. take this cough drop out of my mouth now. Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And God said, let there be an expanse. There's the firmament. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. They believed that the expanse was this clear, solid dome in the sky that held back all of the waters. That's why Scripture speaks of God opening the windows of heaven. Genesis seven eleven. in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened. They believed that when it rained, God would open these little windows, and then water would come down. And when the flood came, they believed that the waters of the deep also rose up. So today people debate whether there was a local or universal flood in Noah's day. But for Noah, it was more like this snow globe that he was living in was filling up with water. That's how Noah viewed the world. It was local and universal for Noah because the dome that he lived in was filling up with water. Noah believed that these windows in the heaven were opened and water came through. And also the waters of the deep rose up and started filling up this snow globe that he lived in. Not only that, but the Israelites also believed that a creature named Leviathan lived and swam in the deep waters. And the prophet Isaiah picks up on this when he says in Isaiah 27:1, in that day the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. The seas were chaotic. It's where evil lived. It's where the dragon Leviathan swam and devoured people. Now, Leviathan is ultimately a symbol of Satan, the great serpent. And so the sea became a symbol of evil for the Israelites. In fact, where does the beast come from in the book of Revelation? John tells us in Revelation 13.1, And I saw a beast Rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous, blasphemous names on its heads. So the beast rises out of the sea, the realm of evil, the realm of chaos. And that idea is all over the Old Testament. The seas were a symbol of chaos and evil. And that's what John means when he says this in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. John is not saying here that there's not going to be oceans on the new earth. I mean, that would not be good news, would it? The beach is evidence of God's goodness, is it not? What John is saying when he says that the sea is no more is that evil is no more, sin is no more, chaos is no more, destruction is no more. It will never occur again. He's not saying that there will be no ocean because God created the oceans and he called them good. He's saying that evil will be done away with finally and forever. The sea, the realm of chaos and evil will be no more. Now, with this in mind, think about this. Why does Jesus walk on water? Did he walk on water just to show the disciples some cool trick? No. As we'll see in Mark chapter 6, Jesus walks on water to show the disciples again that he alone has power over all evil, over all chaos, over all the spiritual forces of wickedness. That's why Jesus walks on the water, to show the disciples that he is all-powerful and only he can control evil, only he can control chaos. And that's exactly what he's teaching them here in Mark chapter 4. Jesus is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. He is God. Okay, now back to Mark. Keep their cosmology, how they understood the world, keep it in your head as we look at our passage. Because for the disciples, something under their boat was drooling. Namely, Leviathan, the great serpent. Of the deep seas. Look again at verse thirty-five. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, "Let us go across to the other side." And leaving the crowd, they took with him, took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, "Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing?" And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So it's dark, and the disciples are in a boat, and they're probably shaking in their boots, or they're about to be, When the wind picks up. And this is a very significant thing that is taking place here, Mark. It would be like us getting into a boat in the Loch Ness after watching a documentary on the Loch Ness Monster. This would be like us jumping off the Pismo pier after watching the movie Jaws. This would be like us going away to summer camp after watching Friday the 13th. This was a scary thing, a very scary thing for the disciples. But understand what Mark is telling us because it goes against our very nature to do what Jesus is doing here. Jesus led the disciples into the darkness. Jesus led them into the darkness. He led them into the storm, into the night. And Jesus leaves the crowd behind because he has an appointment with a demon-possessed man across the sea. As we'll see next week, it's evening. It's dark when Jesus has a run-in with a naked, violent, deranged, demon-possessed man in a cemetery in the heart of Gentile territory near a pig farm. That's a horror movie for a Jew. But before Jesus takes the disciples on this scary adventure in the cemetery, Jesus takes them into the darkness of a storm where life jackets suddenly become the hottest item on the boat. Oh, and while everyone else is freaking out about the boat that's about to sink, guess what? Jesus is taking a nap. Jesus is counting sheep, and they're counting life jackets. And if you want biblical proof that naps are God-ordained, here you go. I give you Mark 438, Jesus slept. I'm going to imitate Christ today, this afternoon. Mark tells us here that Jesus was sleeping. So Jesus is asleep on the stern of the ship and the winds pick up and the boat begins to take on water and the disciples start panicking and they see the boat is filling up and then they see Jesus and he is sound asleep. I mean, the wind, the storm, the waves crashing, the water coming in, none of it wakes Jesus up. I mean, he is out. And then the disciples wake him up and they ask, don't you care that we are dying how would you like to be woken up from a nap and immediately accused of something? Perhaps it happens with your kids. Don't you care that we're starving? It's breakfast. Yes, I I care. Well, that's Jesus here. And what the disciples are doing is exposing their hearts. They're exposing their theology. They don't believe in this moment that Jesus cares about them. Listen, Don't build your theology on what you assume to be the silence of God. That's what the disciples are doing here. They're building their beliefs on the seeming silence of God. Because they don't see Jesus intervening right away, they assume that he doesn't care. The storm rose up, Jesus didn't wake up, so he must not care. Problems pop up in our lives. We don't see Jesus showing up instantly, and we assume that he doesn't care. Don't build your theology on the seeming silence of God. Build it on the spoken word of God. Build it on the promises of God. So the disciples wake Jesus up and they ask him, Don't you care that we are dying? We need to pause here because what the disciples are doing is actually exposing our hearts. When they ask Jesus if he even cares, they're pulling back the curtains and exposing our hearts because we do this too, don't we? How often have we said or at least thought it when we are going through a hard time, does God care? Do you even care, Jesus? Probably more than we want to admit. Think about this. Why do we get embittered when Jesus confronts our self-reliance, why do we get frustrated when Jesus exposes our self-delusions? That's what's happening here in the boat as the waves of the Sea of Galilee are about to take this boat down. They are interrupting Jesus' nap, but he's interrupting their worldview and exposing their hearts. God is in the business of exposing our hearts and pointing out our self-reliance. He loves us so much that he does that. He doesn't leave us alone as we attempt to build our own little kingdoms of self. No, he loves us so much that he will allow things to occur in our lives in order to get our attention and expose areas where we are relying on our own wisdom and on our own strength. Jesus loves us so much that he will allow hardships to occur in our lives in order to get our attention and expose all the areas where we are relying on our own wisdom, on our own strength, on our own swagger. So we should pause here a moment to get recalibrated because how many of us live for our own little kingdom? All of us do, right? I'll readily admit that I can make life and even ministry about me. My wants, my wishes, my desires. All of us are prone to make life about us in our own little kingdoms. I want my way. I want my way here at Grace. I want my way in my home. In the roundabouts of this city, I want my way. In the drive through at Chick-fil-A last night at 9:15 guess who wanted his way this guy everywhere i go and whatever i'm doing i want my way i want my needs met why because i'm the king y'all didn't know that right i'm the king i want what i want because i'm right because i'm the king that's all of us that's all of us every single day it's a tendency that we have to fight against you want to know how much I love being a king? The king this much. I had to get a wake-up call in the middle of the night. The Holy Spirit loves me so much that he gently woke me up a few weeks ago at 1:37 a.m. And once I'm awake, I can't go back to sleep. That's my thorn in the flesh. Once I'm up, I'm up. And the Holy Spirit knows this. So if he wants to get my attention, he knows how. So I was wide awake and I started listening to this podcast On my phone, which is what I usually do when I can't go back to sleep. Put in my earbuds and listen. And I thought I would fall asleep listening to it. But the Holy Spirit had other plans. I was awake the whole time because I believe the Spirit wanted me to hear once again through this podcast that I was listening to that I was trying to be the king of my own little pathetic kingdom. And I was gently rebuked, and graciously and gently reminded that living for Jesus' kingdom is far better and far more satisfying than living for my weak, puny, little, pathetic kingdom. Now, I've since forgotten that lesson a bunch, and he has come back again. But thank God that he will interrupt us sometimes. He will even wake us up at 1.37 a.m. in the morning to remind us That our kingdoms are not worth living for. The Holy Spirit loves you enough to do that. When's the last time you heard that the Holy Spirit loves you? The Holy Spirit loves you. And he loves you so much that he will gently interrupt your world, interrupt your schedule so that he can capture your heart again. And that's all why we always need to hear the law of God preached here every week. We always, every week, need to have our hearts exposed because all week long we all spend time working on advancing our own little kingdoms of self. We all have these props and these crutches that we all run to for support. Our lives seem to be experiments in not trusting the Lord, but instead trusting in our own gadgets and trusting in our own gifts and trusting in our own identities, trusting in our own props, trusting in our own crutches, trusting in our own little kingdoms. And that's what's happening here in the boat with the disciples. Where they are trusting in other things is being exposed here. So the disciples wake Jesus up and they ask Jesus, Don't you care that we are dying? And Jesus, with sleepy eyes and maybe wiping some slobber or drool off his face, rebukes the wind and tells the sea, Peace, be still. And then it was quiet. Picture it. No more wind. No more waves. No more worrying. It was absolutely calm, just like that. And then Jesus asks them a question. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? He answers their question with a question. In other words, where is your faith? Where is it located? Where is your faith located? Jesus wants them to see that it's not the size or the intensity of their faith that matters, but the object of their faith. Who are they trusting in? It's almost as if Jesus is saying, why are you so afraid? You still have me. I'm here. I haven't gone anywhere. You still have me. I'm right here in your life as you are in this storm. Listen, faith does not save us. Jesus does. The size of our faith does not matter It's the object of our faith that does. Are we trusting in Jesus, whatever the size of our faith? We are weak and frail. And so on the surface, we do have every conceivable reason to be scared, just like the disciples. But only if you remove Jesus from the equation. If Jesus is in the mix... We don't have to be afraid. When Jesus is near, there is nothing to fear. But after Jesus calms the storm, they were really filled with fear, weren't they? They were afraid when the waves were crashing and the boat began to take on water, but now they are really afraid. You can be afraid of crashing waves, but when someone comes along more powerful than the waves, your fear shifts. Now, let's think back to their cosmology How did they view the world? The oceans, the seas, were a chaotic, evil force that could not be controlled. It was the place where the mythological dragon beast Leviathan lived. And in the boat was a man who just woke up from a nap, wiped the slobber and drool off his face, and he just spoke, and the wind and the waves stopped. In Greek, Jesus just speaks two words, peace, still, Two words calm the forces of chaos. Two words shut down Leviathan. That's it. Two words, and it ends. And that's why the disciples were filled with great fear. Perhaps Psalm 74 flashed through their minds. Verses 13 and 14. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Jesus was asleep. He woke up and with two words calmed the stormy chaos. In the Old Testament, only Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, has this kind of power. And that's why Mark tells us in verse 41, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Perhaps Psalm 104 flashed through their minds. Verse 25 and 26. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. Perhaps these other verses flash through their minds. Psalm 65, 7. Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. Psalm 89, verse 9. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 107, 29, he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? He's Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, the triune God. And he wakes up from his nap and he calms the storm with just two words. Now, they're trying to comprehend this. They're trying to make the connection. They're like, wait, what? We know that only Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, can control the chaotic waters, and you just did. So that means that, wait, are you, what? Who are you? They didn't have a category for God incarnate. And they're realizing he's in the boat with them. Jesus can take a nap. And wake up and control the wind and the waves. And demonstrate his power over evil. And that means that today you can place your faith in him. You can trust him with your very life. You can trust him with everything that concerns you right now. With everything that's breaking your heart right now. There's no need to be afraid. You can trust him. You don't have to fear Because Jesus is near. That's what the disciples are learning here. They're learning to trust the good shepherd. The waves that intruded their boat led them where? To the stern of the ship. To the God-man sleeping on the cushion. What they were experiencing led them where? Led them straight to Jesus. The point is that whatever God in his sovereignty Allows to come into your life, you can trust him. He's smarter than you. He's wiser than you. For the disciples, it was being led to the scariest place that they could think of. Out on the open waters, in Leviathan's territory, in a boat, when a storm begins and the boat is taking on water. That was the darkest, scariest place that they could imagine. Although what we'll see next week in Mark 5 is just as scary. This was one of the darkest, scariest places that they could imagine. And Jesus led them there. Jesus led them there. And that means you can trust Jesus wherever he takes you. You trust him because he is the only one we can really trust and the only one who can truly help us. And so by God's grace, we can humble ourselves and have a childlike faith that trusts our Heavenly Father is working things out for our good and His glory. Now, will there be times in our lives where we struggle to believe this? Absolutely. Of course. Just look at the disciples. And that's why we need Jesus because we, no matter how much of a front we all put up, we can't do life On our own and in our own strength. We can't. You don't have to fear because Jesus is near. When Jesus is near, there is nothing to fear. We live in a world where Jesus is present and in charge in every place. And in every circumstance, there is no situation, there is no circumstance where Jesus is not present and in charge and calling all of the shots. Whatever's going on in your life today, right now, that's got you worked up and worried and you're concerned and there's fear and you can't sleep and you can't eat, guess who's there with you? Jesus. And he's in charge and he's calling all of the shots. Not you. Not the people in the situation that you're in. They're not calling all the shots. They're not directing everything in your life. He is. But will will there be times in our lives when we struggle to believe this? Times when we struggle to believe that Jesus is present and working things out for our good? Absolutely. Of course we will struggle to believe this sometimes. And it's okay in those moments if all that you can pray is like the Father in Mark chapter 9 who said this to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Sometimes that's the most spiritual prayer that you can pray. I believe, Jesus, help my unbelief. God is doing more in our suffering than we can see with our eyes He was doing more for the disciples than they could see with their eyes. He was teaching them to trust. He was showing them who he was. Yahweh, God incarnate. And God is doing more in your suffering than you can see with your eyes. He may take you into the storm. He may take you into the darkness. But he has purposes for you that sometimes can't be seen. And in those times... We have to see Him with the eyes of faith. Now, sometimes you'll hear people say this, God will never give you more than you can bear. You ever heard that? God will never give you more than you can bear. To that, I say, huh? Really? Do you really believe that? I don't believe that because there have been numerous times in my life when I felt like I had been given more than I could bear. If God only gives us what we can handle, If he only gives us what we can bear, then why do we need him? In my experience, God will give you more than you can bear. God often gives us more than we can bear so that we will trust in him and not in our own resources, not in our own wisdom, not in our own swagger. I can pull this off. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God will take you to places that you have not planned on going in order that you would rely on him and not you. The Bible is full of stories like this, isn't it? Jesus himself was reminded of this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Sometimes when you are so overwhelmed with suffering and pain and sorrow and sadna- sadness, you will feel like God has let you go. And there may be more truth to that than you realize. Sometimes God just might let us go. Sometimes God might let you go into the darkness, into the night, into the storm, but he is with you, and that makes all the difference. He may let you go into the darkness, but he will not let you go. Matt Smethurst says, Sometimes Christ calms the storm, and sometimes he lets the storm rage and calms his child. He is with you, even when you feel like he has let you go. And Mark is telling us that sometimes God will let you go into some darkness, into some storm. Of course, God does not let you go in the sense that he abandons you and leaves you to yourself. That's blasphemy. God never forsakes his children. God never leaves his children. Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. He promised that to us. But sometimes God's love will let us go down a path of pain and suffering that we would not choose for ourselves. Sometimes God leads us down a path of sorrow and sadness that we wouldn't choose to walk down. Sometimes God's love just might let us go. His love just might let us go down a hard path into some storm so that He will be glorified and our faith will blossom. That's what Mark is saying here. The disciples were under the impression that if Jesus loves us, then he won't allow difficulties and hardships to come into our lives. And we've all fallen prey to that kind of thinking, haven't we? If Jesus loves me, then he won't allow difficulties and hardships to come into my life. But in love, God may take you to a dark place, into the darkness, into the night, into the storm. In his sovereign wisdom, he may take you somewhere you don't want to go or would never plan to go. Now, I struggle with that, to be honest with you. I struggle with that. That kind of thinking does not come naturally to me. But I believe that the Bible teaches it. I think Mark is teaching that here. But I struggle with it. And I think Jesus would say to us today, it's okay to say with that father in Mark 9, I believe, help my unbelief. Afflictions and storms and waves have a divinely ordained purpose, namely, to change our perspective regarding ourselves. We get our eyes off of us and on to the one who loves us so much and with a very meticulous providence is orchestrating all the details of our lives. Jesus was allowing only so much water to get into the disciples' boat. He meticulously had determined just how many ounces of water were going to get inside of that boat before he stopped it. Jesus is, deals with meticulous details. You know those commercials where you see like the fine print, like take this drug and then you know, you'll know you get better, but the fine print says like your arm will fall off or you'll die. Jesus deals with that kind of fine print that you can't even read on the screen. He's very, very meticulous. He's very meticulous in your life right now. You're wondering what's going on and Jesus says, I'm reading the fine print and I'm orchestrating all of the details. He's doing that in your life right now, right at this moment. Or you may be thinking he's asleep on a cushion, but he's actually meticulously directing every detail of your life, and you can trust him for that. Boat or no boat. He is in charge of how much water gets in your boat he is orchestrating every detail of your life right now with a very meticulous and detailed providence. And you can trust him, even though you cannot see his purposes right now. And we have a Savior who was not immune to any of this. Jesus was thrown into the ultimate storm for us. On the cross, he was thrown into the sea of God's judgment against sinners like us. In the garden, he prayed and asked if there was some other way to save sinners. And the reply he heard from his father was, No, this is the way. You have to be plunged into the storm of my wrath in order to save sinners. And he went with joy to the cross for you, for me. And if Jesus did not abandon us in the sea of God's wrath and judgment because we're sinners, if he did not abandon us in the sea of God's wrath and judgment that we rightly deserve, but he came to rescue and to save us from those waters, will he leave us alone in the storms that we are experiencing right now? if he rescued us from the crashing waves of God's wrath against our sin, against our rebellion against him because we want to be king, if he rescued us from the crashing waves of God's wrath against our sin, will he abandon us now? No. There's no way he will leave you or forsake you or abandoning you. He is with you right now. Emmanuel, God with us. The good shepherd is with you. You don't have to fear. Whatever it is that you're going through in your life, you don't have to fear because Jesus is near. It is well because Jesus is near. And when sorrows like sea billows roll, it is well with our souls because Jesus is near. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are in control. We would do a terrible job of running this world. We would do a terrible job of just running our own little life. We don't have the wisdom. We don't have the power. And yet we still try. Would you forgive us of that? Forgive us for not trusting you? Not believing that you're good and tender and merciful and kind. And would you help us to believe this morning, God, that whatever we're going through, Lord, you have purposes that cannot be thwarted. Cannot be thwarted by us, cannot be thwarted by others, cannot be thwarted by that great dragon, Leviathan, the devil. You are in control, and you have all the power. Help us to trust in that. Help us to rest in that. And help us to rejoice in that. And help us to be able to leave here today to say, it is well with our souls, because Jesus is near. We ask these things in his name. Amen.